let me describe to you uh, a morning which may or may not have been this morning, um, but uh, I'm putting the finishing touches on a talk for the Christian Union. Uh, it shouldn't be a stress. It's 7am. I've woken up. I don't need to give the talk until 12. I've got plenty of time if I start work now. I lie in bed contemplating getting up and I think uh, that I should probably just check a few of the news websites first of all. After all, you never know what's happened. It's important to be informed. And then I'm checking a few sort of tech websites that I like to look at. Uh, I'm flicking through Facebook. I have a quick look at my Twitter timeline and it's eight o'clock. I drag myself out of bed, I shower and shave, I head downstairs for breakfast. I read my phone while I eat breakfast and then I grab coffee uh, and I read some more and I can feel the tension starting to creep into my body. The anxiety plucking at the corners of my mind. I should be working, but I probably need another coffee first. It's nine o'clock. Coffee in hand, I sit down to write, but instead... I start listening to a podcast and playing a game on my phone. Half an hour goes by and I really should be getting down to work. I shouldn't check my emails, but I do. And I know I'm trying to distract myself from the ever increasing anxiety, which wouldn't be there if I'd started earlier. But now it's 9.30 and I'm starting to kick myself. I could have started at 7.30. I could have done two hours of work already why does past me hate present me? Why do I hate myself? Uh, my name's Ben and I'm a procrastinator. Now, I assume from the fact that you guys are here that uh, you recognise something of yourself in that. The assignment that you should be doing, the exam that you should be studying for, the notes you could be revising. But it feels too big. It feels too scary. Uh, you don't really want to think about it. And besides, it's not quite the right time to start. You know, you're too sleepy, uh, you're too fidgety, you're too anxious. You're not really in the right zone to be working on that assignment right now, are you? Maybe you just need to check Facebook again and just keep scrolling through the feed. And besides, your desk is a mess. You can't start work until your desk is tidy. So you tidy your desk, you start looking at your research topic on Wikipedia, and suddenly you're following links and looking about, reading about obscure South American rodents. You're frustrated with yourself, you're irritable, you're annoyed. You can't work in this state. Maybe what you need to do is just sort of relax, go watch another episode of The Walking Dead and eat some ice cream. Uh, the author Stephen Pressfield says that there's a secret that real writers know that wannabe writers don't. And the secret is this. It's not the writing part that's hard. What's hard is sitting down to write. I don't know if you've ever had that experience that where you delay sitting down to work on that assignment. You might delay hours, maybe days, maybe even weeks. And then when you finally get to the point where the anxiety is so great that you've just got to sit down and do it, you knock out the thing in no time. You bash out a thousand words in an hour and you spent three hours, 30 hours, 300 hours putting it off, building it up into an impossible task and then it turned out to be not that bad after all. But here's the thing, 
you paid a price, didn't you? It's not your best work, but that's not really the problem. Worse is that you spent those three hours, those 30 hours, those 300 hours worrying about this thing. You could have started it earlier. You could have bashed it out and spent the night out with your friends. You could have enjoyed a guilt-free night of ice cream and TV. But you knew you had this thing hanging over your head. And so you said no to your friends. You spent the evening alone instead worrying about your assignment, but actually watching cat videos on YouTube. And in the end, you got it done, but you're exhausted. You pulled an all-nighter. I'm looking at you, Cara. I got two hours of sleep. (laughs) And you're ruined for the next day, for the next week. Now, I reckon I spent about 90% of my time at uni worrying about study and assignments and stuff like that. Uh, But only 10% of my time actually doing anything about it. And 10% is probably a bit generous. It's probably more like 5%. And so what's going on? Why do I hate myself? Why do I sabotage myself? Well, Pressfield has an answer. He says, it's not the writing part that's hard. What's hard is sitting down to write. And what keeps us from sitting down is resistance. He's a writer, so he's talking about resistance, uh, this idea of resistance when it comes to writing. But he says resistance is not only provoked by a desire to write. The following is a list in no particular order of those activities that most commonly elicit resistance. The pursuit of any calling in writing, painting, music, film, dance or any creative art, however marginal or unconventional. The launching of any entrepreneurial venture or enterprise for profit or otherwise. Any diet or health regimen. Any program of spiritual advancement. Any activity whose aim is tighter abdominals. Any course or program designed to overcome an unwholesome habit or addiction. Education of every kind. Any act of political, moral or ethical courage, including the decision to change for the better some unworthy pattern of thought or conduct in ourselves. The undertaking of any enterprise or endeavour whose aim is to help others. Any act that entails commitment of the heart. The decision to get married, to have a child, to weather a rocky patch in a relationship. And the taking of any principled stand in the face of adversity. In other words, any act that rejects instant gratification in favour of long-term growth, health or integrity. Any act that does that will elicit resistance. Uh, But where does resistance come from? Well, the blogger uh, Tim Urban talks about the brain of a non-procrastinator being driven by what he calls the rational decision-maker. The rational decision-maker is in charge. He's uh, steering the ship. Uh, And he does things that are sensible, that are reasonable. He thinks long-term. He makes good decisions uh, for the person. But in the brain of a procrastinator is someone else. The instant gratification monkey. The rational decision-maker, who uh, the procrastinator, still has a rational decision-maker. His purpose is still to make good decisions think make decisions that make sense, think long-term. But the instant gratification monkey is there right by his side. Uh, He writes that uh, the instant gratification monkey 
uh, is the last creature who should be in charge of decisions. He thinks only about the present, ignoring lessons from the past and disregarding the future altogether, and he concerns himself entirely with maximising the ease and pleasure of the current moment. So when the rational decision maker wants to sit down and write the assignment, the uh, instant gratification monkey jumps in and tells him that he could do much more enjoyable things than that. Uh, and interestingly, the Bible has a name for the person who's controlled by the instant gratification monkey. Uh, it calls him the sluggard. So if you read Proverbs, you'll come across a little Proverbs about the sluggard. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. A sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. In other words, I can't go outside and do my job. There might be a lion out there who might come and eat me. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. That is, if you're a sluggard, if you're controlled by the instant gratification monkey, then every path looks like it's filled with thorns. I can't even start. Pressfield says, Resistance seems to come from outside ourselves. We locate it in our spouses, jobs, bosses, kids, peripheral opponents, as Pat Riley used to say when he coached the LA Lakers. Resistance is not a peripheral opponent. Resistance arises from within. It is self-generated and self-perpetuated. Resistance is the enemy within. So the instant gratification monkey, the sluggard, the resistance, they all recognise that there's some kind of internal malevolent force within us that is determined to destroy us. Uh, Pressfield says, resistance's goal is not to wound or disable. Resistance aims to kill. Its target is the epicentre of our being, our genius, our soul, the unique and priceless gift we were put on earth to give and that no one else but us has. Resistance means business. When we fight it, we're in a war to the death. Which raises the question of how do you fight resistance? Uh, how do we overpower the instant gratification monkey and regain control of our lives? How do we avoid becoming the sluggard? Well, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, the first step is to admit that you have a problem which I presume partly you're doing by being here today. But after admitting you've got a problem, what then? Well, Pressfield's answer is to turn professional. He says, aspiring artists defeated by resistance share one trait. They all think like amateurs. They have not yet turned pro. To be clear, when I say professional, I don't mean doctors and lawyers. I mean the professional as an ideal, the professional in contrast to the amateur. Consider the differences. The amateur plays for fun, the professional plays for keeps. To the amateur, the game is his avocation. To the pro, it's his vocation. The amateur plays part-time, the professional full-time. 
The amateur is a weekend warrior. The professional is there seven days a week. Resistance hates it when we turn pro. The amateur believes he must first overcome his fear, then he can do his work. The professional knows that fear can never be overcome. He knows there is no such thing as a fearless warrior or a dread-free artist. The amateur, underestimating resistance as cunning, permits the flu to keep him from his chapters. He believes the serpent's voice in his head that says mailing off that manuscript is more important than doing the day's work. The professional has learned better. He respects resistance. He knows if he caves in today, no matter how plausible the pretext, he'll be twice as likely to cave in tomorrow. The professional knows that resistance is like a telemarketer. If you so much as say hello, you're finished. The pro doesn't even pick up the phone. He stays at work. Uh, And I want to say, I think Pressfield's onto something. Uh, But that for the problem is that for all his talk of the resistance and how serious it is, I don't think he takes it seriously enough. He's kind of like, uh, he's got a glimpse of the real problem, that there is this internal evil force fighting against us, trying to prevent us from what we were made to be. But he's kind of like a doctor who has seen pain and diagnoses indigestion when in fact he's dealing with bowel cancer. So the Bible agrees that there is an internal malevolent force uh, that kind of isn't us, and yet at the same time it is us. A force that arises from within, that's self-generated and self-perpetuated, whose aim is to destroy us by keeping us from becoming who we were made to be. And the Bible calls it sin. What were we made for? Well, Pressfield's half right. Uh, We were made to be creators. Uh, Or to use Tolkien's term, we were made to be sub-creators. There's only one person who truly creates from nothing, that's God. But we were made in his image. We're made to be sub-creators, to be creative. And more than that, we're made to enjoy friendship with him. God's created the world. And he's invited us to join him in the work of shaping and fashioning it into something beautiful, something that reflects his glory to each other and to the rest of creation. But here's the problem. We believe the serpent's voice. We listen to the instant gratification monkey that says, that's no fun. God just wants you to be his slave. Why don't you just do what you want instead? You know, without God, you can be in charge. You can do whatever you like, whatever makes you happy right here, right now. And that's what we've all decided. We've decided that we're going to be in charge. We listen to the voice. But it turns out that when we do that, it's not really us in charge, is it? It's actually this malevolent force within us. The resistance, sin. It is us, and yet it isn't us. Like with resistance, we often see the good that we ought to do, but we don't do it. We have a sense of the ultimate creator, 
but we suppress that sense to do our own thing. We're not who God made us to be. The Bible puts it this way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And so the question becomes, how do you deal with that? Well, uh, the first step is to admit that you've got a problem. We've turned our backs on God. We're not who he made us to be. We do deserve his punishment. But after you've recognised that you've got a problem, what then? Is Pressfield right? Can you solve the problem by turning pro? Well, I think he's right that we do need to take the problem seriously. But turning pro isn't the solution. We could work harder at trying to be good people, at trying to do the right thing. But that won't actually solve the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that we've turned our backs on God. And turning pro won't solve that, because we'll still be ignoring him, we'll still be doing things our own way. So I think uh, for all Pressfield's insight, he's wrong there. And Alcoholics Anonymous, actually, is closer to the truth. Uh, the first three steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, well, the first step is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. In other words, admit you've got a problem. But the second, uh, the second step is that we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. In other words, you can't solve it, but God can. And thirdly, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. We can't solve the problem, but God can, if we are willing to hand over control of our lives to him. That verse I quoted from the Bible before, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it actually goes on. It says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We can't solve our problem. We can't get rid of this internal malevolent force ourselves. We can't deal with our own sin. But God can and he has. He sent Jesus to pay the price for our rebellion and to reconcile us to him. And he gives his Holy Spirit to change what we're like internally to change us so that we're no longer rebels against him, no longer controlled by sin, but actually set free from it, made his children. So to come back to the original problem, uh, we have a problem where procrastinators, but actually procrastination reveals a bigger problem that's going on inside us, that we have an internal malevolent force that is out to destroy us, to ruin our lives, to ruin our eternal life by, becoming, uh, by preventing us from becoming the people we were made to be. What's the solution? Well, turning pro might help you to get your work done, but it won't make you who you were made to be. Only God can do that. And he has done it by sending Jesus to pay for our sin and reconcile us to him. So this is the first in a series of three talks uh, on procrastination and time management. Uh, this is really looking at um, the, the sort of heart of the problem, the issue of 
resistance of sin. Uh, but the next two are going to focus a bit more on uh, why we procrastinate and some more sort of solutions and wisdom that the Bible uh, gives to that. So uh, come along to those, uh, bring your friends. I think they'll be helpful. Uh, why don't I stop and take questions from anyone? What do you think? Like, does it ring true to you? That sort of experience of resistance? It's more serious than I thought. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like seeing the spiritual battle play out in such small things. Mm. You know, like, I mean, I, I know that, like, God is in control of everything and stuff like that, but, you know, like, sometimes we've got our little earthly things and sometimes there's, like, the big things that he is involved in. But, yeah. Like... yeah, it's one of those little windows in everyday life where you can see through to this bigger problem that's actually going on. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art, uh, is well worth reading. He's crazy, like he's insane in lots of ways, and he's got really weird spiritual views. Um, he's certainly not Christian by any means, but um, I think he has picked up on something that's real, uh, that's going on. What does he do? He's, oh. a, he's a writer, so he writes yeah. novels. Okay. Yeah, he writes sort of, I guess his main ones are historical novels about um, the Greek wars. Yeah, they're really great, like Spartans and Athenians fighting the Persians and yeah, lots of fun. Also wrote a book called The Legend of Bagger Vance, which got turned into a movie with, um, I think it was Will Smith. Yeah. Really interesting guy. Um, so let me give you some uh, resources that you might want to check out. So there's The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Um, if you want a Christian perspective on time management that picks up on lots of stuff I'm going to talk about in this one and in the next a couple of talks, there's a book called What's Best Next by Matt Perman, P-E-R-M-A-N. What's Best Next by Matt Perman. Uh, and there's some... Um, there's a series of blog posts. Uh, this one from waitbutwhy.com uh, by Tim Urban. So if you Google Tim Urban procrastination, uh, you'll come across them uh, with the... Uh, the rational decision maker, the instant gratification monster, uh, the instant gratification monkey, and there's also the panic monster, who I'll talk more about uh, next week. <laughs> so look up those, um, yeah, and letter to the Romans is cool. Yep. Um, I was going to say the idea of having the Holy Spirit in us changing us. Mm -hmm. If that's true, then why is it that at every point when our heart is exposed, it's exposed to be completely utterly sinful and <laughs> Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think that's because that's what we are like in and of ourselves. Mm. Um, but I think God is slowly changing Christians to uh, be more like Jesus. That's not an instantaneous thing. And some of us are starting from a very long way back. <laughs> um, but I think that is what's happening as we think through the gospel and apply it more, which is more what the next talk will be about.